Welcome to Bo Newbury. Today I'm with Raul Cano, who is someone I met uh, a number of years ago at a conference in Berlin. Uh, Raul is an Information and Knowledge Management Program Manager at the European Southern Observatory based in Chile. But first of all, what really strikes me as I prepared for this conversation, I saw, Raul, that you have a real interesting series of organizations that you've worked with. You've worked with the European Space Agency, then you've worked with Bayer, then you were a test engineer for an air traffic control system in Madrid, and now you're at the observatory in Chile. And that just makes me wonder if Bayer is sort of an outlier in uh, in your experience or not. Maybe you could just talk to us a little bit about your work, where you came from, what your path has been so far. Well, first of all, good morning and thanks for having me on your podcast. It's an honor to be invited. And yeah, as, as you say, it's been quite an adventure changing from one place to another. The thing that you mentioned about Bayer being an outlier in my career, it may seem so because, of course, I've worked uh, in space industry, now astronomy, and then Bayer is life science, right? But when you look closely, what I'm doing is called information and knowledge management. This is a very horizontal discipline. So it means that wherever you need some management of information, where there is usually a knowledge intensive organization, you need actually someone who takes the best out of that, right? To find the right synergies, to find the right balances on knowledge generation, creation, and, and consuming. And this is pretty much what I've been doing the past around 10 years, 11 years already. So I've been having a, a, a rather consistent career. On I started as a knowledge management intern in the European Space Agency. We didn't know a lot of how to approach because this is a rather new discipline, knowledge management. But then we started evolving as uh, the, the organization also evolved and the needs uh, went uh, to new levels, let's say. So we grew and at some point I decided to change a bit my career and I saw a position in Bayer and in Bayer, even though it's a completely different atmosphere, the problems were very similar. <laughs> I think I've mentioned that before. The way I see what I do, it's like I'm a plumber of information. So I don't <laughs> need to be so much concerned with, with the content, with the information that is sent around, shared and distributed. I must be concerned with how the, the information is reaching the people that need it. Yeah. So I'm concerned with the flow and that's why uh, I am lucky to be able to work in many different uh, areas. Uh, that's very interesting. Just a sort of a sideline, I have spent uh, over 20 years working with large corporate organizations, including Bayer at one point in time. Mm -hmm. And then at uh, somewhere mid-career, I was invited to come and do some work with the United Nations, several mm -hmm. agencies. And my first thought was, I can't do this. United Nations agencies will be totally different from the big global corporations I know. And you know, Raul, exactly the same thing. They were not different at all in their issues with digital strategies. People are people. In the role that you have, you must have seen a lot of challenges. Is there a similarity or some major ones that you've seen over the years? 
Yeah, if, if you look at it from, a, let's say, a wider perspective, I have worked for three major organizations. And one thing they all share, they all have in common, even though they come from different areas, right, is that they have evolved during decades in a very organic way, right? It means that because different departments have had uh, their own autonomy, it turns out that at some point after many years, you have lots of islands of knowledge. So even if you are in the same organization, some people don't know what's going on in other parts and, and the challenges lay mostly in this part. So another way to look at what I'm doing is to build bridges between these islands, right? Because this is, this is very difficult. Uh, there are technological challenges. For example, databases of all sorts are to be interconnected if you want to, uh, to achieve some sort of ease of use or user friendliness. So you just don't want to miss what's going on, for example, in, in the sales department with the research department. So people really need to get feedback of what's going on in other places. So technologically speaking, it's, it's a challenge. If we go to a more commercial side of, of the things, like technologies come with different licensing uh, schemes. So there is a lot of duplication of costs if things are not done properly. So we, we tend not to mention that, to stress that, but uh, knowledge management, if done properly, can save you costs, uh, especially if you know that you're using the same software into parts of the organization, you can get probably a better deal and not doing things independently. And one of the major challenges as well is also the mindset of people, right? So coming from, let's say, a generation where uh, knowledge is power. So it's uh, if you are the person who knows something, you are incentivized not to share that because this is what keeps you there. At some point, we really need to move to a more open organization and it, this requires a change of mindset and and that's definitely not easy i think it was spotter who said that the, any cultural change of an organization takes from three to five years um at least right so yeah i have seen that i have experienced that and it's true that uh, these are let's say the major challenges how to build the right bridges and how to get people to participate in a proper way i think it's probably due to the nature of what we are trying to achieve it's not because of there is any particular i don't know technical impediment or anything it's just knowledge management in the end is sort of people management but for something specific right for how to share what you know and how to allow you to learn in the best possible way so this goes to the core of how we behave at work. So how do I start my day? Like where I get the information from? Who do I ask? Uh, where do I store what I know? So th these are basically key aspects of someone's behavior. And sure, you don't want to go telling people how they have to behave in the work they have been doing like 20 years. So you really need to go little by little, maybe improving here and there. If, if we take that discussion to a very, very general scope, like tradition is sort of the summary of what has been human behavior for ages. So in many cases, there is a lot of truth in tradition, even though you don't really know where it comes from. So in a workplace, it's a more localized area, but I think there is a bit of truth of that. Yes, that's interesting. You call yourself on your LinkedIn profile an amateur philosopher, and you were just speaking <laughs> like a philosopher. Are you a gig mindsetter, personally? 
I guess I, I tend to, yeah. I try to bring that to my activities. Um, not always successfully. For example, um, um, I've been part of some working groups and sometimes I try to push, like, let's come up with a solution. We know it's not going to be perfect because, I mean, if, if the working group is about changing some organizational process, and as I have said, where I've worked, uh, they have been very uh, conservative organizations, like decades old and so on. So probably saying that uh, whatever you're going to do, that you know it's going to fail at the beginning, it's it's not the most popular selling point. <laughs> right, yeah. right. But I, I try to be very open about that. I say, look, we know that this is a very complex system and probably the solution is not come up with the first absolute solution because it's very difficult. Probably we're not going to do that. So let's come with a solution that's good enough, uh, contain the risk, yeah, and then learn from experience and uh, reassess and iterate. So this is sort of the, the ideas I try to bring to my activities. And sometimes it's more successful than others, I have to say. Right. As I referred to earlier, you called yourself an amateur philosopher. Mm. And I discovered your, I don't know if you considered a blog or a website called The Knowledge Argument. And I'm going to mm -hmm. put a link to it in the show notes for this episode. I found it really, really interesting. The knowledge oh, thank you. argument. <laughs> You're welcome. I mean, you put a lot of work into that. Mm. And two articles in particular struck me. But first, let me ask you, are you aware of any specific outcomes or benefits or reactions that you've seen in other people who have discovered your website and read your articles? Anything in particular? Or is it more of a general sort of nudging that you're trying to do? So I would say that the website and my articles are the outcome of the discussions I have, I've had with, with people before, because mm. these are some topics I'm very interested at. So I've read a few books here and there, and I have some, well, not a lot, but one or two friends who share this interest. And when you try to talk about these things, uh, then, uh, of course, the arguments to defend in one side or another are not so simple. So I try to put the, the arguments in writing because, of course, you cannot just talk uh, deep philosophy through WhatsApp or, yeah. <laughs> or, or just yeah. over a beer. Well, maybe, but it's, uh, I, I try to sort my thoughts. I would say that's the outcome I've tried to uh, achieve with the blog uh, it's i don't know it's it's not even publicity or anything i just put it there because i thought that also at some point i thought what if at some point i die and what would my daughter think of me who was his father and then at least she will have some thoughts of what was <laughs> in my head during this time right and uh, because it's it's not only work and i don't know doing the day-to-day -day stuff there is also, in, also something else going on and that's a, a, a way to be remembered in a way, but yeah. also to foster discussions, just like uh, you are asking me right now. So it's yeah. why not? These are good side it, effects. There's one article that you call Knowledge Comes <clears throat> Before Happiness. And mm -hmm. I'd like to, for uh, people listening to the podcast, I'd like to simply read a short paragraph from it. You say, if your ultimate goal is happiness, then you have to be very clear about three things. What do you mean by a goal? What happiness really is for you? And third, how to achieve it? And then you go on to say, 
Without the proper knowledge, you cannot know if the, quote, happiness you arrive at at a certain point in time is the happiness that corresponds to your ultimate goal, or is it merely what you call a demo version of what could lay far beyond? There's a lot of things in that paragraph I just read to you. Knowledge comes before happiness. Can you expand your thoughts just a little bit for us? Yeah, probably you're familiar when uh, someone says, uh, my life goal is to reach happiness. Uh, you've, I'm sure you've heard that. I've heard that yeah. many times. And I try to be a bit contrarian on those, <laughs> let's say, cliches, because yes. it's like, okay, you want to reach happiness, but what is happiness? And, and when, the moment you ask that, then the other person is like, okay, wait a second, what's going on? What's happiness? Um, is it immediate pleasure? Or is there something, for example, is your goal in life to retire at 30 and then drink mojitos at the beach for the rest of your life? Would you say that's happiness? Uh, probably not, right? It would be very boring to, to be 30 years laying at the beach with a mojito in the hand. Yeah? Right? <laughs> uh, so you really need to know what you're talking about if you are going to commit your life to some goal. And that's why I'm saying knowledge is a tool you need before reaching that goal. And also that's why I said you need to know what a goal is. Is a goal something temporary specific, like the 23rd of December, 2025, I will measure this variable. If I, if I have reached that, then I'm happy. And if I haven't reached that, I'm not happy. So what do you mean by a goal? Uh, also, what do you mean most importantly by happiness? And that's why I said that first, just get your act together. Just do some study, think about what's happiness and and go for that knowledge that will get you there, where, whatever it is that you think about that, uh, that you think happiness is. Yeah? So that's why I thought uh, probably we have to talk in terms of reaching the proper knowledge and then maybe the solution would be to be happy. Like I want to commit my life to be happy, but maybe I want to commit my life to help others, which is not necessarily something that makes you happy. Maybe you are going to be miserable by helping others. But if this is something that you reach as a conclusion, why not, right? So let's put knowledge before. And then if it's happiness, what comes out, great. If it's other thing, well, also great, because you now know what you are doing. Yeah, okay. That uh, explains uh, the underlying thinking that you had in that article. And the second article that struck me on your website was what you call arithmetical and moral truths. And there I'd like to read again a paragraph which I find uh, striking. It sort of is a good follow-on from what you just talked about. You say another way to see morality is as the set of truths that relate to our behaviors or what we ought to do when conscious beings are involved. Then you go on to say that your claim is that this set of truths is universal and just like logic, it applies to everyone everywhere. I am not aiming to show what those truths are. For that, moral philosophers have been discussing for millennia. My claim is, however, that those universal truths of morality do exist. Do you still believe that? Yeah, and when someone else reads that, it sounds even more important. So. <laughs> <laughs> I like that very much. I liked it very much. 
Yeah, I absolutely believe that. It's a difficult conversation to have because we don't have the proper language to talk about morality or dimension of moral truths or so on. So let me put you an example. Um, today, almost nobody would deny that there are truths that are arithmetical truths that exist and uh, which are independent of the existence of humans. Let's say one year before you were born, two plus two was equal four, right? So this is a truth that is not contingent to your existence. So two plus two is equals four, no matter if you are alive or not. So the same will happen when we die. Two plus two will be four. So when the last human stands, the same will happen. So the last human uh, will die. There will be no humans in the universe, no conscious beings, let's say, no one who is able to understand that two plus two equals four, even a universe of rocks, let's say. But there is a dimension, an arithmetical dimension to the universe that makes this true. And somehow, because of evolutionary advantage or whatever reason, we are actually able to grasp that uh, truth. So humans, we saw a set of rules that are unscapable to our understanding. You just cannot, once you understand why 2 plus 2 equals 4, you just cannot unlearn that. There is no way you can escape to that truth, right? So what I am arguing is that with morality, there is something similar. There are a set of rules that belong to the universe and conscious beings. And those truths are not dependent on anyone being alive or not. It's just the truths are there. And for example, um, not creating a pointless agony to a creature, to a conscious being. This would be probably one of the rules that we could agree on. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, but this is subjective. And I'm saying, no, no. What I'm saying is that there is a rule, say, the universe is worse if we would have the very same universe, but with pointless agony. So you do some sort of arithmetical calculus of pain and suffering, and you say, yeah, probably we should avoid pointless pain. I don't know why, I, but the same way I don't know why I know that 2 equals 4. Also, uh, but I do have access to that truth. I think we humans do have access to moral truths like this, uh, you ought not to create pe uh, pointless agony. This would be the easiest rule I can think of. Morality is definitely more complex than that. But the fact that we can think of one that is more or less unquestionable, it makes me think that, well, maybe there are actually some truths out there and the universe is not only arithmetical truths, but there are also some moral truths. So the point we agree that there are arithmetical truths that are universal, which means that they are independent of humans, but there may be also some other truths that are moral, that apply to humans and, and sentient beings, but also they, they don't need humans for these rules to be there. So the rule will still apply, like don't create pointless agony, it's like a rule you should follow whether there is someone in the universe or if there is no one, well, this rule won't apply, but it's still there. That's deep. I think we've reached uh, the end of our conversation. Uh, Raul, do you have anything that you'd like to add? Any final thoughts? Well, I guess coming back to the main topic of, of your book, of the gig mindset, I truly believe that this is a 
a net benefit for society if we all had more of a deep mindset in ourselves. I was thinking about that and probably in not all cases, not all organizations can implement that or not in all areas because, for example, what I've been working on at ESA, they send satellites to space. So they just cannot allow themselves to fail uh, on the first time they do it. So they mm -hmm. have to get things right the first time. Otherwise, you just cannot send someone to repair a satellite. Well, NASA did to, to repair Hubble, but it's definitely too costly. So you really need to, to be very slow in certain circumstances. And I'm still struggling to think if the gig mindset for these particular cases would work. I need, mm. still need to clear up my mind because um, in these very extreme situations where critical systems are, uh, a slow is actually the way in which you get more efficient outcomes because yeah, if you go too yeah. fast, then you have to redo things. But then that's the only th way where I was thinking that maybe the gig mindset, maybe it's not the best framework. But other than that, I think that most of the organizations, most of the workers would definitely benefit of exploring more, being less hesitant to, to failure. But if it's a failure, let's not make it pointless. If it's a failure, you learn from it. And that's how actually you grow as a professional. And I think the deep mindset captures that very well. So Great. that's probably the sum up of what I wanted well, to say. Thank you very much, Raul. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I would like to invite people who have listened to it to go on over to my website, boldnewbreed.com, with more details and links about what Raul and I have just been talking about. And tune in soon for the next episode. Thank you very much.